Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. There I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each pair is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. So we're continuing on in Ephesians. We've been doing that since the beginning of the year. So if you've been here the last several weeks, you know that's where we've been. And that's where we're marching through until Easter Sunday. Um, Today we come to Ephesians 4. And we finally get to hit a topic that we've really been talking about the whole time. We just haven't actually addressed it directly. And the topic is unity. Unity. So we've talked in a number of ways over the last several weeks about how through the gospel, the, the playing field has been leveled. So there's no one greater or lesser. But when we come to Christ, we are, we are his. We are one in Christ. And so it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or black or white or advantaged or disadvantaged. In Christ, we come with our need and we come with our, our dependency on him and we find his grace. And his grace makes us new and alive. And so what it, what it does is it brings this amazing unity to humanity. And today we get to talk about that uh, pretty directly in a beautiful way. So Ephesians 4 is a beautiful passage um, that we're going to jump into. But as we think about unity, there's, there's some caveats here just right from the beginning that we don't, we don't say we're talking about unity in like a kumbaya type of way. Like, okay, let's all just be in harmony and always get along and never argue, never disagreeing or all that. Like, so unity may be different than what you first think when we discuss biblical Christian unity in the, in the way that Paul talks about it. So we're going we're gonna to jump into it in a way that's perhaps a bit surprising. And uh, I'm going to 
I've done this once before. I'm going to do it a little bit again today, just so I'm not plagiarizing. But I'm, I'm really being influenced in, this, in the outline of this by a, a Tim Keller sermon that I listened to this week. It's from 2011 on this text. And I just love the outline that he gave. So I'm going to use his outline while obviously applying it for our own context as well. Um, but give credit where credit is due. Thank you to him for helping me kind of get my framework here. But he, he really was helpful, um, particularly with this first point which is as we approach the idea of Christian unity, we have to realize that this passage in Ephesians 4 talks a ton about maturity and growing in to be mature as believers in Christ or mature as people. And so, therefore, if we're working towards being mature, then that naturally means that currently we are immature. Or as Tim Keller would say, we are all spiritual babies. That's the, the way he would describe it. And as you look through this text, you, you begin to see that. And we'll walk through that as the morning goes on. But particularly as you get towards the end of Ephesians 4, so into verse um, 14, see here it says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves. So therefore, he's saying to work up to be like that means that currently we have to view ourselves as spiritual children. Um, And we want to grow into spiritual adults, basically. And so as I look across the room, I see a lot of different faces, you know, young and old and different physical uh, ages. But spiritually speaking, through being born again in Christ, we all are born Just like you're physically born as an infant, when you're reborn, you're born as a spiritual baby. And I loved how Tim Keller kind of brings that image about. And so that's not a bad thing. That's the first thing to say. Like To be a spiritual baby is okay because that means you're alive. You've been reborn. And so as we've been going through Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, we've seen the theme of being born again or As um, Ephesians, uh, let's see, Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says, By grace you've been saved through faith, and you've been made alive with Christ. So you've been taken from a spiritual death and now been given a spiritual life. You've been born again. And you're born again as as a baby. And so even if you go back to last week, to chapter 3, when we were in verses 14 to 20, It says this verse in verse 20, which we didn't really get into this as much last week, so I'll just mention it here. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Well, what is the power at work within us? When you're born again, when you're spiritually reborn, and when you've been made alive in Christ, you've been given a deep spiritual power that lives inside of you. Well, what is that power? We learned last week that it's literally Jesus dwelling in you. That Christ dwells in your hearts through faith. He lives in you. He enters into your life. And that's the spirit of the Trinity itself. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit invade your life in the most beautiful way. Like we said last week, they move into your home and start renovating your life. They start moving around the furniture and and doing all these constructive things in your life that maybe are uncomfortable, but they're for the betterment of your your whole life. 
And so the spirit of God is living in you. It brings you to life. The Holy Spirit strengthens us with God's power in our, in our, in our inner being. Christ dwells in our heart through faith. And this means that a Christian is someone who has the spirit of the living God in you. The Trinity itself is living in your life and therefore flowing through you and making you new, making you alive. So you're, you're living life and viewing life and doing things differently than you did before because you've been made alive. You've been brought from death to life. It's an amazing thing. Romans chapter eight says that if the spirit of of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he'll bring life to your mortal bodies. That's what's happened by grace, by the great grace of God. He, he makes you a spiritual newborn. And so you begin this new life as an infant in him. And so this is all true and amazing, um, but all it really simply means is that we've become a spiritual baby. Like you begin a new life. It's not just that your life ends when you put your faith in Jesus. It's that it begins. It's the beginning of a new spiritual life. And so Paul says in the scriptures that we have to grow into mature manhood or womanhood, obviously, into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what verse 13 says. And so, um, Again, we're going to talk about maturity because this is going to this is a big part in learning how to be unified. But let's just pause here first to say that if you're a brand new Christian, which I know there's some brand new Christians that have been coming here and are part of our church, and that's an awesome thing. That's a we love that. But just know that being a brand new Christian or being a baby Christian, that's a beautiful thing. That's a good thing. It means that we're dependent it means that we have childlike faith because everything is new and it's exciting and it's open before us. And we, and just, just like little babies grow the fastest, like you see, you see them grow faster and they learn things about the world faster and you see the developmental process pick up. It's the same for new Christians or new believers is that's when you're learning the most. That's when you're, you're the sponge that's just taking everything in and you learn a ton in a relatively short amount of time and you can grow pretty quickly. And that's why when you put your faith in Jesus, um, like join the party, like be part of the church and let's serve together. Let's do it. Sometimes the, the newest Christians are the best evangelists, right? Because they're, they've seen just recently how their life has changed and they want everybody to know. And that's awesome. Um, but it's not good to stay a baby forever, Right. Like babies are meant to grow into toddlers and into adolescents and into teenagers and into adults. And so it's not healthy to not grow. And so same for Christians. Uh, we need to go deeper into our, our growth as believers, as individuals, as a church, um, and continue to grow. And so Paul gives three examples here in this passage of the dangers of not growing or being stuck as immature Christians, basically, or baby Christians. And so remember, he's writing to the Ephesian church. So this is ancient Ephesus, which we, we made the comparison a few weeks ago, how ancient Ephesus is not all that different from modern Salem. People were involved in witchcraft and idolatry and the magic arts. And remember, a bunch of people came and burned their books in the middle of the city. So they were born again. They're putting away their past stuff. Um, but now 
Paul's like, let's grow. Let's grow as a church. Let's grow as believers so that your life can really take off and, and the church can have an impact. So here are three examples of spiritual immaturity that Paul says the church needs to learn to grow out of. Number one, uh, well, let me actually, before I get into the number one, let me just show this. So it says, so we may no longer be children, verse 14. Again, that's where we're building off of. Um, But here's the first one. Uh, Go to verse 14. So right after when it says, so that we we may no longer be children, um, it says, who are tossed to and fro by the waves. So spiritual children are are those who are easily tossed by the waves. And so it's a great image because we live by the ocean, so we see the waves all the time. You've been in the ocean, and you know that um, yeah, if, you, if you just throw yourself into the ocean and get tossed around, then that means you're, you're not solidly onto something. Um, you're unsteady. You're unsteady. So to be tossed easily by the waves of the world, metaphorically, means that you're, you're unsteady meaning that you bounce from one thing to the next. You're not firmly entrenched in something. You're not necessarily committed to something or seeing it through to the end. Um, and th- think about that even emotionally, just what it, what it looks like to be emotionally unsteady. It means that maybe if someone gives you feedback or criticism or tries to teach you something, um, you may or may not latch on to it. You kind of bounce from one thing to the next, just like a wave would come and easily knock you over. And again, if you're a baby and you're in the ocean, you're tossed by the waves pretty easily because you're small and your legs are not that strong. And so to be a spiritually immature Christian is one that just gets knocked around easily. It doesn't have a fortitude. Um, One that's still learning how to be committed to this new thing that's changed your life. Um, and again, that's, that's, that's why the first year of being a Christian can be so exciting, but also can be a little volatile because you may come to church one week and say, well, that was amazing. I learned a ton and everybody was encouraging and the songs were great and I felt the presence of Jesus. And then maybe two months later you say, I don't really know. I didn't really get something from that today. Maybe this isn't really what I was thinking it was going to be. Um, that's, the, that's a little bit of the toss to and fro, right? Kind of, and that's, that's natural. It's, again, it's a natural part of the development process, but it's also something to grow out of in terms of your commitment. The second thing here that this passage gets to, so right after that in verse 14, so it says, no longer be like children, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Um, so Tim Keller said that this is, this is really what reveals a lack of discernment. So if you're a spiritual infant still, um, learning to discern different teaching or different um, preaching or different interpretations can be difficult. So it's easy to be carried about by different winds of doctrine. So I love this example that Keller used. He talks about how babies, when they're given food options, like, like little babies, before they know what tastes good and what doesn't taste good, If you put a food item in front of them, they'll just grab it and eat it and just try it. Just, okay, give it whatever it is, vegetable, fruit, whatever. I'll just try it. But that also means that if you were to put poison in front of them, they would just grab that too because they don't know the difference between poison and chocolate. They'll just grab it and do it because they don't have discernment. They haven't been taught that poison will kill you. 
And so that's dangerous, right? So we have to learn discernment. Same with spirituality. Same with our Christian walk. We have to learn discernment on the truth, on the scriptures, on how to understand the Bible for ourselves, how to interpret it, and how to be able to identify those who are leading you astray by human cunning, it says, or craftiness. Those who have an agenda or are trying to lead you away from correct doctrine. The third and last thing here about um, spiritual immaturity goes back to the beginning of chapter four. Um, and he puts it in a positive way, but I want to let's frame it like what the backwards part of it is. So verse three, it's or verse two, I'm sorry. It says, uh, so walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. So if you were to flip that and you're not doing that, the opposite of humility is arrogance or pride. The opposite of gentleness would be harshness or anger. The opposite of patience would be quick, rash decisions. The opposite of bearing with one another in love is quick to correct or challenge, not sticking through with someone and being patient with them. And the opposite of eager to maintain the unity of the spirit would be always seeking to be right and not to listen to other views that could also be constructive. And so self-centeredness, right? Like we're, we're all prone to that as humans, you know that. We're prone to be selfish, but especially as spiritual infants, that's, that's where we begin. It's like, okay, what can, what can Jesus do for me? What can, what can church do for me? What, can the, what Bible text can, can help me today? And that's, again, those are good things. Like it's a, the Bible does do those things. The church does do those things. Jesus does speak to us. But the sign of a mature, growing Christian is one who's looking at the needs of others, to be patient, to be humble, to bear with one another in love, and to grow in their faith that way. And so that's where we begin as relatively spiritually immature babies. And again, the, the scary part about Christianity is you could remain a spiritual baby your whole life. You could put your faith in Jesus and go to heaven and be saved, but never grow into a mature believer. And that's sad. And so as a church, that's what we want to commit to helping one another do is to to grow into who we really can be, the fullness of who God calls us to be. And that's why the next section is really cool. How does God do that? How does he grow us out of spiritual babyhood and into the people we're meant to be. And that's the second point is spiritual gifts. Spiritual giftedness. Verses seven through 12 show us that God has made each of us unique and has given us each gifts to grow into, to learn who we are and to grow into the fullness of who God has made us to be. And so verse seven, for instance, don't miss this word, but grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace. We've talked about grace a lot the last few weeks. Um, I mean, grace is, grace is the, the core, not only of the book of Ephesians, but of the whole Christian life. Because of God's free gift to us that we didn't earn, but that he gives to us, not only do we get salvation, but we also get to discover who we are and our giftedness. And God gives us 
gives us the grace to discover who we've been made to be in Christ. And so what's the measure of Christ's gift? According to verse seven, it says, according to the measure of Christ's gift. What's the measure of Christ's gift? Well, we answered that last week, right? The immeasurable greatness of God's love for us, that the measure of Christ's gift is that it's immeasurable. How wide and how long and how deep is the love of Christ for us? So his, his gifts are measureless. He's got infinite amount to give out to us. And by his grace, he, he gives one to each one of us. And this is the dynamic aspect of unity, is that each of us here are different. Each of us who have been born again and made alive have been given specific, unique gifts to bless each other with and to serve the church with and to reach people with the good news outside of these walls with. So um, what are the gifts? I mean, this is exciting. I, we'd, uh, we did this with the deacons last year where we, we had them walk through a spiritual gifts test of sorts to try to identify like, okay, on our deacons, who has certain gifts and how can we use those properly as a team to grow? And um, we'd love to help you all figure that out as well. But there's really two places in the Bible that clearly show different spiritual gifts in, in a list form. One is Romans 12 and one is 1 Corinthians 12. And both of those talk about the different varieties of the gifts of the spirit that are given to believers and um, talks about how we're one body, but we're different members and each of us have been given different gifts. So Romans 12 talks about things like um, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, use in proportion to our faith. If service, then in serving. If one teaches, then in his teaching. If one exhorts, in his exhortation. If one contributes, in generosity. If one leads, with zeal. If one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. So those are some of those examples there. And then 1 Corinthians 12 talks about uh, different gifts as well. It talks about gifts of healing, uh, the works of miracles, prophecy, the ability to distinguish between the spirit, the spirits, various kinds of tongues to interpret. Um, all are empowered by the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And so Ed, we would love, I mean, we don't have time today to go through all those different gifts and have you discover that in the live here and now, but we'd love to help you discern that if you've never done that before, like who has God made me to be and how can we fan into flame the gifts that God has given you and then um, see how God can bring those out in a beautiful way. But what this passage, Ephesians 4, really focuses on is particular gifts that are used to equip others. So equipping gifts and he talks about in verses 11 and 12, five different types of roles of people who have a gift, but a particular gift to use to help grow others to grow in their faith and to mature. And so he talks about apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And so just in short, apostles are those who are sent out to start new ministries or to go plant churches or to go initiate a new ministry. So that's like Paul. Paul, that's why we call him the Apostle Paul. He's the sent out one who went from town to town establishing new ministries. And then we have prophets who are, these are folks that are those who call out truth in the public square, in the, in the forums of our world, those who, who speak to the truth of God and call it out publicly publicly. 
or evangelists. These are those who just have a fire in them to tell other people about Jesus all the time and do it naturally and share the good news. Shepherds or pastors, those are those who care for the people of God, who nurture the flock and bring us together in unity and and build up the church. And then obviously teachers, those are those who who teach the scriptures, those who have the gift to expound upon the word of God and to lead others into the whole counsel of God so that nothing is left out. And, And the point of all this, it says, is to equip the saints for the works of ministry. So just a reminder, if you're a believer in Jesus, you are a saint. You are a holy one. You've been made holy by the blood of Jesus. You have been brought into the priesthood of all believers. You are, you're a holy person who has an amazing gift to the world to give. And it's a job for someone like me, who's one of these, a shepherd, to equip you, to simply give you the tools and the armor that we'll get into in Ephesians 6, or the things to use so that you can go and live into your gifts well. So if you're not growing, a lot of that's on me because it's my job to help equip you to do that, to equip the saints for the works of ministry so that you all can go and serve the city of Salem well for the building up of the body of Christ. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So in other words, this is a lifelong task. Um, So as we finish up, how do we do this? What does it look like to be a spiritually mature person? So how do, we, how do we actually get from baby Christian status, understanding our spiritual gifts, to then being a mature believer who, who is a mature man or woman in Christ? I just want to ask these two questions. Um, this is one way to check yourself, to say, am I growing? Am I maturing in my faith? Question number one, ask this to yourself. And this is coming from verse two. Am I more humble, gentle, patient, and loving today than I was this time last year? Am I more humble, gentle, patient, and loving than I was this time last year? So February 25th, 2023 to today. Do I see that in myself? Second question ask the same question to somebody else. So am, am, I, am I more humble, gentle, loving, and patient than I was last year? Can you give me an honest answer? And if you have a good friend or a good church member, they'll give you an honest answer and they'll let you know. And that's why we need each other. And that's why unity is where we come back to is that unity in the church is how we build up one another in our spiritual gifts and in our maturity and how we grow from babyhood to adulthood. We are one body, it says. So it's interesting um, when it says mature manhood, that's a singular word that we, we individually, plural, grow up into one spiritual man or woman in Christ, which is the body, right? So our, our maturity is only met when we grow into something together to where all of us collectively become one thing that is visible to the outside world. We become one church. 
That's what mature spirituality is. That's what mature Christian living is, is ultimate unity in the body, unity in the church. We grow up into every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint in which is hit, which is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so again, we have to see here again that Jesus is the head. So we're growing up into him. Um, He's the one that makes the whole thing go. We grow up into him together. So we only mature and grow individually in relationship to the growth and maturity of the whole body. And this is why unity in the church really is so vital. So vital. We have to be moving together in doctrine so that we agree on what we believe. We have to move together in how we serve the city. We have to move together in how we welcome visitors All of our decisions, we need to strive for unity in the church under the direction of Jesus, the head, who gives us that discernment. Unity is important because it reflects the very nature of God himself. Remember we said earlier that as a born-again Christian, you have the power of the living God living in you, which is not just the spirit of Jesus, but it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit dwelling in your life, meaning three in one. God himself is a beautiful, unified community in and of himself. And so we as Christians reflect that by being unified as his body. And that's how we grow together. Unity is the only way to grow mature in faith in Jesus. And so that's why it's really impossible to be a Christian by yourself. Like you need need something like this. We need this to grow. Uh, there's a quote by A.W. Tozer, and I, I just think this is great because it, um, it, it's not about pursuing unity just for unity's sake. Again, like the kumbaya harmony thing. But A.W. Tozer says, he says, 100 worshipers meeting together, each one of them looking away from themselves but to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be if they were to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and to strive for closer fellowship. So you see there, it's not about just like, hey, let's get more unified and do a sermon series on unity and talk about it every week. It's about pursuing Jesus. All of us individually pursuing Jesus. And that actually makes us unified because he's our head. All of our parts that we, all of our gifts are connected to the head to Jesus. And therefore we find our life when we're most connected to him. So practically speaking, here's the practical thing we can leave each other with. How do you actually do that in real time as a church? Verse 15, speak the truth in love. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we grow up into every way into him who is the head into Christ. Speaking the truth in love. That's something you can practice 10 minutes from now. How do I, the next person I talk to today, speak the truth in love? So that means truth. Encourage them with Jesus, with the reality of the gospel, with the hope of salvation, with all the things that are most important. Like those are truthful things. Speak truth to people. Hey, I see you sinning. You shouldn't do that because Jesus doesn't want you to do that. This is not the way we should live. Truth. But in love, meaning with compassion, with gentleness, bearing with one another in love, 
but while holding on to the truth as well. So John Stott, he talks about truth and love together. He says, our love grows soft if it is not strengthened by truth. And our truth grows hard if it's not softened by love. So truth and love is the real litmus test of how we interact with each other. Truth and love together. So for loving this city, for Salem, the place that we walk out of these doors into, I just think it's really important that the people of this city, just like in Ephesus, will only see Jesus as attractive and compelling if they see a church that's unified and that speaks the truth and love to one another. And that's why Paul was saying this to the Ephesians, because he's like, guys, these people outside in Ephesus, they're worshiping Artemis and these other idols, and they're into all these things. They need to see that we are unified together. We speak the truth and love to one another. And if they see that, they see a group of 100 people or 50 people like us that are different and diverse and unique, but who've been made alive collectively by Jesus then people outside these walls will begin to see Jesus as compelling. But if they see a fractured church, a church that bickers and is not unified and doesn't speak the truth in love, they're never going to want to come see that Jesus. Not in a time like ours, not in a city like this. So our witness is never neutral. And that's why Jesus in John 17 prays for the unity of the church. He says, I pray that you'll be one so that those outside of here will know who God is. So that's my prayer. That's my prayer for us, my prayer for you. And um, as we go into the next couple of weeks into the deeper aspects of Ephesians, we'll just continue to encourage one another with these texts. Um, Speak the truth in love. That's where we'll finish for today. Let me close us in a word of prayer and then we'll stand and sing a final hymn together. Gracious God, thank you for for making us dynamic in the sense of that we're all different. We all have different gifts, but you, you make the possibility for an extravagant unity um, that is so compelling to a divided world. So God, I pray for this church that you will make us into that image uh, for the city of Salem, that folks would see this church and see a, a unified church that loves you, that's saved by grace, that sacrifices our lives so that others may come to know you. So God, as we finish our service today, will you, uh, will you be glorified in our midst and will you make us into the church you want us to be? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.